Chapter Fourteen of Zara the Cruel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Angela Jeffries. Zara the Cruel by Joan Conquest. Chapter Fourteen A Greater Liar Than Mosalama. Arabic Proverb three weeks passed in which the arabian nursed ralph trenchard until the fever brought on by exhaustion thirst and terrific heat had left him and left him very sane and not unduly weak and very full of gratitude to the beautiful girl whom he seemed to have seen at his bedside day and night and who seemed to have changed her dress a hundred times if she had changed it once the nerve-racking jangle of her bracelets and anklets and the overwhelming strength of her perfume drove him well-nigh crazy at times but remembering what he would learn from her upon his complete recovery he stuffed the ends of the silk sheets into his ears and held his nostrils forcibly between thumb and finger under the cover of the same luxurious bedspread truly once or twice he had grievously feared for his reason he wakened one night to see a remarkably handsome and muscular man clad in naught but a loin-cloth sitting motionless in the middle of the floor with what looked like a woman's sandal pressed to his heart and right strange and idiotic did he look too when he placed the sandal upon the floor and proceeded to press his forehead upon it then two or three or maybe four more nights following for he had completely lost all sense of time he wakened to see nothing less than a lion rolling blithely upon its back not two yards from him which having rolled a while proceeded to gamble playfully among the room then slouched to the doorway through which it disappeared for good when he turned slowly upon his bed to see what else might be in store for him he saw the face of the beautiful girl looking down upon him from a spot twixt the floor and ceiling as though suspended in mid-air he laughed when the delirium passed these strange occurrences were explained to him by zara who just because he felt too uncertain for the moment about past events to question her about helen allowed herself to be deluded into the belief that he had forgotten the tale al-assad had told when he visited the bedouin camp disguised as a holy man then this evening he sent the youth who waited upon him to ask her to come to him she came quickly the zara the beautiful the tender the pitiful zara the most perfect hypocrite and liar and sat at his feet upon the floor appropriately clothed in black and silver with the lower part of her lovely face semi-hidden by a yashmak over which her beautiful eyes gazed into his with an expression which would have deceived even the astutest old holy father where is helen raynor he asked the question abruptly taking her unawares she had intended telling him if he should remember the nubian story that Helen had returned to Huta under escort, and had perished in the locust storm. But the abrupt question took her off her guard. She is dead, and buried in the quicksands. She lied instantly, uncontrollably, infinitely unwisely, without giving a thought to the far-reaching effects of the lie. Dead? My God! When? How? Seeing the terrible mistake she had made, seeing no way out of it, she backed the lie planning in a flash to give a slight foundation to the disastrous mistake 
by getting rid of the girl that very night. She laid her henna-tipped, jeweled hand upon Ralph Trenchard's, and told him the sad story of Helen Raynard's death, and mopped her melting, dry eyes with the corner of the silken sheet as she answered his horrified questions. "'Yes, I made a great effort to save her, her, my dear, dear schoolmate,' she said. "'But alas, kismet! Allah had decreed otherwise!' Her arms showed like creamy yellow ivory as she raised them dutifully above her downcast head in a gesture that showed off her alluring figure to perfection. Nay, dear Helena said no wor word. She just died. What? Where? Oh, in a bed, yes, here in the mountain dwelling. By the mercy of Mohammed the pro Prophet, she did die, so that her face should be a beautiful memory to her f friends, even I, Zara, she struck her breast with a beautiful gesture of resignation, but not hard enough to mark it, even in her intense grief. Yes, even if I, Zara, shall have to carry the d dreadful picture of it all broken before my eyes until the day when death shall claim me also. When Ralph Trenchard shivered in absolute horror, she shivered also, perhaps out of sympathy for him perhaps to impress the thought of the English girl's face upon him. Who knows? Then she got up and trailed across the floor to a table laden with drinks of divers sweetness and coolness. He looked at the exquisite picture she made, and longing to hear more about the girl he loved, stretched out his hand, and she looked at him with the love of all women in her glorious eyes, and walked back to him swiftly and with all the grace of her Spanish mother, carrying a tray with glasses of frothing sherbet, which he did not want or touch. "'Thou art indeed a man,' she said softly in Arabic, as she placed the tray on a stool, ensconced herself cross-legged upon the divan, and leant towards him as she lit her cigarette, so that he was almost suffocated with the pungency of her perfume. "'Yea, verily amongst my subjects,' who are of a truth somewhat misshapen about the legs from overmuch bestriding of the Niji, thou art indeed a man. She sat and looked at him with all her love in her eyes, whilst he sat and wished that in some way he could express his gratitude for all she had done for Helen. But when, after much searching in those portions of her raiment, which looked as though they might be large enough to conceal a minute pocket, she showed him Helen's wristwatch upon her palm, then he moved close to her and crushed her hand in both of his until he almost broke her fingers, as she told him how Helen had given it to her in memory of old times. "'I give it to you,' she said at last. It was a sacrifice. Smothered in jewels as she was, yet with the delight some Orientals have in the purloined object, she coveted that looted watch more than all her rubies, emeralds, pearls, and diamonds put together in a heap. He sat for a long time with the tragic, lying little token in his hand, then turned and looked into the doe-like eyes, which looked fearlessly back into his. "'And this is all? You have nothing else. No little thing. A handkerchief. A hairpin. Anything, no matter how trivial, that belonged to your old school friend?' Zara shook her beautiful head and sighed as she lied once more with the ease of a long-established custom and the certainty of being able before long to give some foundation to the lie. "'Nothing. No little zing,' 
We b b buried her, as I have told you. It, it, it's close. She was not beautiful to look upon. I, I, she, she was not pretty in, in great sleep. So we buried her deep, deep, deep in comforting sands, which tell no tales. She rose once more as she spoke and trailed across the marbled floor to the door. Perchance she wished to study astronomy or perchance to draw a comparison between the beauty of those who live in luxury and the disfigurement of those who die in battle. Whatever her intent, she certainly made a striking picture as she leaned against the lintel, wrapped in a sheath of black and silver. Ralph Trenchard stared at her, his eyes wandering from the red curls to the small feet in silver sandals. She knew his eyes to be upon her, and turned slowly sideways and sighed, as she raised her bare arms above her head so that their creamy whiteness shone against the purple background of the sky she sighed again and pressed her hands upon the spot where by rights her heart should have been whilst her melting eyes showed fine specimens of the tears of crocodiles as she inwardly asked herself if in the whole world there was to be found anything quite so slow as an englishman as he sat and gazed and gazed at the exquisite figure in which he saw the golden head and the broad shoulders, the slender waist and the polished riding-boots of the girl to whom he had given the gold watch he held in his hand. He sat quite still for a long time, stunned with horror, then, quite unconscious of what he did, caused the beautiful Arabian to totally lose her bearings, so that fear, jealousy, and the love-linked hands in her heart and drove her down the road of tragedy which had been marked out of her through the ages. Saying nothing, he smiled at her and held out his hand, so that completely on the wrong tack she ran to him, the silver embroidery glittering in response to her fast-beating heart. Then he kissed her hand in gratitude, which was just about the most idiotic thing he could have done, and, considering all things, spoke words of equal idiocy into her willing ear. "'You will come and talk to me to-morrow,' will you not? By talk he meant talk of Helen. But how on earth was the Arabian to know that? You will? Thank you so much, so very much. He stopped. Then, in his craving to regain his strength so as to get away from the horror of the place where Helen lay dead, hidden from him forever in the ghastly sands, misled the Arabian entirely. Can I walk about the camp? Can I have a horse or a camel or something to ride in the desert so as to get really strong? Ride with me? She barely whispered the words. Rather, if you have the time to spare, it would be awfully kind of you. Then we could talk about the school you were at and everything. By which he meant Helen's school days and Helen's illness and Helen's death. But how was the Arabian, blinded by love and vanity, to know that? especially as out of sheer gratitude he held her hand in both of his whilst he talked he took her to the steps and watched her descend then turned and flung himself upon the divan with the watch against his lips while zara the cruel wide awake to the danger of his walking amongst her men whilst helen remained in the camp climbed the narrow path to the building where dwelt the girl he thought to be dead May her envier stumble over her hair. Arabic proverb. She had told Ralph Trenchard that the girl was dead, when not only she was alive, but a person of some consequence in the camp through the thrice-cursed episode of the black mare. Knowing nothing about constancy and honor, 
and about as much about the question of nationality and marriage, she was firmly convinced that in time the white man, forgetting Helen, would succumb to her beauty and marry her. But before that thrice-blessed day, even before he left his dwelling to walk with her in the camp, as he had just suggested, the girl must disappear, so that the unlucky lie should have a slight foundation of truth, as have so many falsehoods in the East when sifted to the bottom. Once the girl was dead, she would rely upon her own power over her own people to prevent the real facts of the case from reaching his ears. The first thing was to find a way of ridding herself of the girl who stood as an obstacle in that path of peace and love which ended in the white man's heart, but above all, a way which would cause no comment amongst the men. The way was shown her, startlingly clear and simple, within the hour. She cursed herself, the lie, the fate, and black mare as she climbed the steep steps to Helen's prison. If only she had not saved the girl in the first place. If only, in the second, she had not so foolishly allowed Helen to win the men's hearts by her magnificent horsemanship. If only she had not lied. If it had not been for that thrice-cursed episode with Lua, the mare, she would have not hesitated at an hour ridding herself of the girl, either by sending her back to civilization under escort, or by some more drastic method. Up till then, the white girl had meant nothing more than a prisoner to the men, and the disappearance of a prisoner, even one of the white race, would have been no subject of comment amongst them. As it was, she could do nothing. The Nubian reported that the men constantly talked about Helen, exercised their best horses in the hope that she would one day ride out in the desert with them, either to hunt ostrich with cheetahs, or to lead them to the attack on some caravan or company of Bedouins. They had taken to standing at the foot of the steep steps to gamble upon the chance of seeing her come out upon the platform, whilst gossip ran high as to the relationship between her and the white man whom the half-caste had saved from the sands of death, so that she cursed herself over and over again for the lie she had told Ralph. She lied by nature, and by habit. In fact, she found it easier and a good deal more enjoyable to lie than to tell the truth, but she had lied without giving herself time to look at the result of this particular lie from every point of view. The surly negress, with the gait of a lame hen, rose from her squatting position as her dire mistress passed up the steps, and retired still farther into the shadows, where she occupied herself in the pleasant and stimulating, if not too elegant, task of chewing cot as a relaxation from the dull work of spying upon the gentle white girl. Zira stood for a moment and looked through the doorway at Helen. She sat upon a pile of cushions, reading by the light of a silver lamp hanging from the ceiling. Certain that the negress had replaced Namaya for the purpose of carrying reports about her, she had made up her mind that nothing but reports of normal behavior should be carried. She woefully missed the peace and austerity of the other dwelling, also the view of the desert through the cleft, and of the plateau with the rushing, sparkling river. But she made no sign, neither did she complain about the heat, which was so much greater, nor about the clutter of Persian rugs, cushions, and tables, which only served to intensify it. She had been told that her old dwelling-place had been acquired for certain prisoners, and that on their account she had been forbidden to walk outside, not a word of which she believed. Certain that eyes continually watched her, she forced herself to read, constantly on the lookout for danger, 
she smiled upon and spoke gently to the surly negress, who would not open her lips or respond in any way to her friendly advances. She was putting up a plucky fight against loneliness and anxiety, but it was not likely that Zara should understand the moral strength which sustained the English girl in the long, weary days of silence and confinement. It would have suited the Arabian better to have seen her crying her eyes out or pacing the floor in agitation, anything, in fact, rather than sitting quietly reading, so that she made a quick gesture of impatience, upon which Helen looked up, shut her book with a snap, and sprang to her feet. Zara, she cried, it's ages since I've seen you. You haven't been near me since I was moved from my old place. Have you got rid of the bad prisoners? I am so tired of being cooped up in here. Zara sat down on a pile of cushions and lit a cigarette, as an answer to her difficulties flashed across her mind at Helen's words. "'You want to walk? You do not like being a pr prisoner yourself? You are, are no prisoner. You must not go across the plateau, but otherwise the place is all yours.' As one could not move out of the place without crossing the plateau, the allness seemed to be limited to the building and a small place behind, surrounded by towering rocks at which even the goats looked askance. Helen knew it, and suddenly changed the subject. She wanted to get leave to wander about the place as she used to. She wanted to find the secret path, and to speak to Namla. She wanted desperately to escape. But she knew Zara's astuteness, and had a faint conception of her intense hatred for herself so went warily in her demand for a little more liberty and changed the subject i wonder what this building was used for she said slowly passing her finger over a roughly carved stone panel tracing the outline of a fish some kind of waterfowl and a cross carved in the centre of a disc in the fifth century by the holy fathers the age almost makes me creep and i often wonder if the dead fathers come back at night to walk about their old home Zara sprang to her feet in a positive whirlwind of gestures against spirits. "'You bring ze bad luck upon yourself and ze place, Helena. Nozing comes here, or leaves here, without my permission.' Helen seized opportunity and crossed quickly to where Zara stood, marveling at her beauty. "'Zara,' she said sweetly, "'when are you going to find the time to take me to Huta? I do so want to get back.' Do you know what I've been thinking? Zara shook her head as she looked at Helen, raging inwardly at the English girl's beauty, especially the golden hair, which for coolness' sake hung in two great plates to her knees. You come with me and stay with me on a return visit, and together we will try and find out what has become of Ralph Trenchard, because I am sure he is alive. I should know if he wasn't. I am sure I should. Zara turned abruptly away swinging her cloak about her so that her mouth was hidden. She wanted to laugh, and she wanted to strike the English girl for the possessive way in which she always spoke of the sick man, whom she, Zara, had nursed so assiduously for days and nights. Also could she willingly have killed her on the spot for the almost irreparable mistake she had caused her to make by lying about her death. Helen saw nothing of the girl's fury. She had bent to pick up a box of chocolates, whilst the surly negress watched her through the doorway and inelegantly wiped her mouth with the back of her hand. "'Have a sweet, Zara,' Helen said gently, offering the box, 
and then be really nice and take me for a walk. I shall die if I don't get a scramble amongst the rocks. Where do you want to go? Zara asked, as she zealously filled her mouth with the sweetmeats the surly negress coveted. I do so want to see the spear which was flung at your father, and then— Helen laughed so that her request should not be taken too seriously. Then couldn't we walk across the wonderfully hidden path to the desert, then walk back? I'll pin your train up if you've got a safety pin. You are beautiful, Zara. I can't think why you haven't been married years ago. Zara whirled round on her like a tiger cat. In her violent jealousy, she thought the other sneered at her. In her littleness of mind, she failed to catch the ring of honest admiration in the girl's voice. Married, she shrilled. I am going to be married soon, and you won't be here to see the ceremony. Oh, do go away. She pushed Helen roughly on one side when she put out her hand in congratulation. We Arabians do not expand over the idea of marriage, as you English do. She walked to the door and added insolently, We have no old maids, and I am younger than you, then clapped her hands and called the surly negress shrilly, angrily. Methinks a whip upon the soles would hasten thy feet, she cried furiously, as the woman ran forward and flung herself face downwards. You three-footed jackal, get up! She struck the woman in the face when she opened her mouth, from which no coherent sound came, owing to her tongue having been split in her youth for misdemeanor, and struck again, until Helen caught her by the shoulder and flung her on one side, whereupon the negress fell on her knees, bowed her head to the ground, and kissed the Arabian's feet. You stop that, Zara. The words sounded like the crack of a whip as the two beautiful girls faced each other over the crouching woman. She's dumb, and I never knew it. It's awful. You fool, replied the Arabian. Her husband beats her after every meal, and sometimes between. Get up. She kicked the woman, who leapt to her feet and stood shivering with her bent head. The white woman has a desire for exercise after her long confinement, owing to the unruliness of the prisoners. Dost hear, thou fool? She wishes to walk across the path of peril, even to the far side. It is dangerous, and I have tried to prevail against her. One step too far, as thou knowest, and she passes into the keeping of Allah, the one and only God. Watch thou, and pray to Allah for her safe return. The negress watched them walk slowly along the narrow path until they were out of sight. Then, with all the cunning of her race in her rolling eyes, and all a child's glee at its naughtiness, crept back to the room, and sliding along the wall, grabbed a handful of French chocolates. If she had waited one instant longer, she might have seen a hidden figure crawl away between the rocks as silently as a snake. Blind Yusuf went quickly amongst the rocks, as at home, and as sure of his footing in his blindness as any goat. He crept through incredibly small places, swinging himself hand over hand at a height where no person with vision would have dared to have even moved, arrived at the cleft, thanks to the shortcut ahead of the girls, dropped like a cat from rock to rock, then, slipping like a shadow between the boulders, sat down in the shadow near the throne spear. He listened to the girls' voices as they made their way down the steep incline. A mouth that prays, a hand that kills. 
He drew a finger down the scars upon his face as he quoted the proverb, and sat like an image of fate as the girl stopped quite close to him at the beginning of the path. "'It is quite hard, you see,' said Zara, as she bent and drove her fingers through a few inches of the wet sand. "'It is not quite three of your yards wide.' "'But how wonderful!' Helen bent and dug her fingers in, then moved them along sideways until her whole hand disappeared into the soft, wet, warm sand which pulled it gently. How dreadful! Then she laughed. She had found her way to the secret path and learned its secret. I tell you what, you lead the way out, Zara, and then we'll turn, and I'll tread in our footsteps and lead you back. Zara laughed also, suddenly shrilly. The way showed clear. The end was in sight. Upon the return journey she had but to push Helen gently, and all the difficulties arising out of the accursed lie would be over. She made a step and put her sandaled foot upon the path, and turned her head and stood quite still, her face convulsed with fury. Like some great guardian spirit, blind Yusuf stood just behind Helen. "'It is not wise, O mistress,' he said gently, "'to venture upon the perilous path this night of strong wind. It bloweth from west unto the east,' so that the wayfarer is likely to be blown into the sands of death. It is not wise, O mistress, and thanks be to Allah that I heard voices as I passed and followed with great swiftness. Nay, verily, it is not wise. He spoke gently, his great cloak hanging motionless in the still night, and salaamed to the ground when the Arabian, without a word, beckoned to the bewildered Helen and swiftly retraced her steps. Back in her prison, Helen walked out to the space behind the dwelling to think over matters as the moon rose over the edge of the mountains. She looked up when a stone rattled down the side to her feet. Upon a ledge, to which a goat would have hardly dared to climb, sat Yosef. He put his fingers to his lips as he looked down at the girl he could not see, but whom he had recognized by her footsteps. Atibalak, he whispered, then rose and swung himself from rock to rock, by the way he had come. Whilst Helen stood looking up until he disappeared, frozen with fear for his safety, then, more determined than ever, through his warning, to try and find a means of escape, turned and entered her dwelling, just as Zara entered hers and summoned Al-Assad. End of chapter 14 Recording by Angela Jeffries